Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. President Donald Trump has been impeached. That is the first sentence of today. What are the next sentences? Those are the first words. What are the next words? Some of those words will be yours. and We'll be taking your calls. I'm Jefferson Smith, and I am sitting in for the Tom Hartman Show. And I'm honored to do it. And I'll tell you the big thing I'm thankful for and some thoughts I've been noodling on. Some thoughts that I've wanted to share on political parties and on patriotism. I'm thankful to live in the United States. I'm thankful to be an American, a U.S. American. I'll say American for purposes of brevity today. The story of democracy, the story of the Democratic Party, I think offers a reflection of the story of America, a party trying to get better in a nation trying to get better, advocating for working farmers during an agrarian age, moving into the machine age, working to overcome control by corrupt political machines, working the past 60 years to overcome its own entrenched Racism, becoming a party that is advocating for equality and opportunity for everybody, a party as imperfect as our country and working to get better. The Republican Party offers an almost opposite story, starting with Abraham Lincoln and emancipation, supporting women's suffrage, then co-opted by corporate power in the McKinley era, And after Teddy Roosevelt's part of the progressive era, spending the 20th century shedding progressive vestiges, the Southern strategy, making way to attacks on social justice, infrastructure, and the middle class, to supercharging wealth disparities and tanking the economy in the 2000 aughts, and now the current occupant of the office praising those celebrating the Confederacy, declining to respond to comply with a lawful subpoena by a co-equal branch of government. This president didn't elect himself, and as I've said from the beginning, we have to be talking about more than impeachment. But today, to be sure, we will be talking about impeachment. The phones are already lighting up. If Ulysses S. Grant had seen leaders of his party celebrating the Confederacy, it would have driven him to drink. 
That is the extent of my Ulysses S. Grant material. There is now a chance for a party and whatever party you might be part of, if you count yourself a progressive, to embrace patriotism and the flag in a different way. For much of my life, Republicans covered themselves in the American flag and questioned the patriotism of political opponents. And for some of us as children of the 80s, there was some discomfort in trumpeting patriotism at all. But now fighting for equality, for opportunity, for peace, for democracy, this is fighting for America. Oligarchy is un-American. The Gilded Age was un-American. Inequality is un-American. Undermining democracy, suppressing votes, rigging districts, fighting for secret money elections, it's un-American. Working to dismantle the American-led international coalition that emerged after World War II in favor of a right-wing network that is called nationalist, but is in fact internationalist and united around racism. That's un-American. Standing up for the Confederacy and its symbols is un-American. The Confederacy were traitors to America, tried to secede from America. Working with foreign oligarchs and foreign agents to influence American elections. Working against American allies. Those are precise textbook definitions, embodiments of un-American. Promoting a unitary executive, an elected king with willingness to rig elections without checks and balances of Congress. Refusing lawful orders is un-American. Saying that neo-Nazis and neo-fascists are good people is un-American. Advancing international cooperation on issues like climate change, on nuclear proliferation, is more important for thriving domestically than ever. This is something I want to talk about today, some of the deeper themes. There is a chance now. And as I watched some of the freshman Democrats, moderates in districts where Republicans can win, and in fact where Trump did, that how might moderate be defined? How might the broader tent of a majority Democratic Party be able to be defined? What might be a path to majority progressives so that the progressive movement is not merely a subset of a party that controls one chamber of Congress, but in fact the progressive is something that helps define the American experience? I think that is by linking the American experience, our effort to be better as a country, to the progressive movement and link the progressive movement to that. Fighting for a constitutional framework that does not shield a president from any check or balance, that is patriotic. Working for a pro-democracy world consensus, working with allies to support democracy and civil rights, that is patriotic. Working for preservation of our planet and natural resources until the seventh generation, that is patriotic. Working for a country that is inclusive and bends the arc of history towards justice, what could be more patriotic than that? Working for a middle class, a stronger, preserved middle class is patriotic. Fighting for democracy itself is the most patriotic thing that exists. In this century, with this president, we don't have to run from the best stories of our country. We don't have to run away from the idea of loving our country. It doesn't have to be a patriotism of race, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a patriotism of religion. It needn't be a patriotism merely of geography. It should be a patriotism of the best ideas that form the United States. And that includes 
a president of the United States that should be the servant of and not the master of the people. I am thankful to live in this country. I have not always felt thankful at every moment of the past three years. And I'm not gleeful about impeaching a president. Anybody who is, is playing a game thinking it's a game, rather than understanding that we are in is a debate about the future of an experiment that can be beautiful, even for all its ugliness. This is a decision that is and should be about principle. We don't know how the politics will play out. We don't know how the electoral results will be impacted by this. So let's be less consequentialist. Let's be more deontological. Let us focus on core values and not merely what means might be justified by their ends. That said, the dynamic up to now has seemed somewhat clear. Dynamic has seemed, well, the House will be willing to stand up for uh, the uh, election system in the United States. The House will be willing to hold this president accountable. There were some Republicans who acted as though they might before Donald Trump became their nominee. That's where the Never Trump movement began. There were all kinds of efforts to keep Donald Trump from being the nominee. In fact, the member, Republican member of the House was quoted in tape saying, oh, there's two, uh, we think there are two people who are getting paid by the Russians. Uh, and one of them was Trump. And they, there was, you know, some sense that they might. What they've realized is that the way that the current right-wing apparatus is built, you can't depart from that apparatus. You can't criticize it in any fundamental, meaningful way. And remain part of the team. You can't ever think you'll be able to be a respected, I shouldn't say respected, a welcomed pundit on Fox News. You can't imagine ever being able to be a nominee for a Republican campaign. You can't imagine ever getting to be the president of the United States. If you're Nikki Haley, you write in your book, praise for Donald Trump, because you realize that if you depart from that, you don't get to, we won't get to invited for the reindeer games in the future. You won't get to be able to be invited to the most important fundraisers. You won't be able to have access as a lobbyist. You won't be able to promise your clients that you have influence with Republican lawmakers. You will be voted off the island. So Republicans have been unwilling to hold the president accountable. We've seen this dynamic. We've seen it's a dynamic very different than when Bill Clinton was uh, was accused was uh, that after having an affair and lying about it, when Republicans tried to use that as a perniciously thin reed upon which to impeach him, uh, that you did not see lockstep support for Bill Clinton among Democrats in Congress. You had a hundred percent vote uh, in the Senate over the rules. Uh, you had some Democrats, you had five Democrats, I think it was, that voted to impeach Bill Clinton. Even with that, you didn't have as many impeachment votes for Bill Clinton as you did for Donald Trump. There was not quite the lockup that you see now. So we've seen the dynamic that the House would be willing to hold the president accountable, the Senate unwilling to hold the president accountable. Then Mitch McConnell went even further and said, we're not even really going to pretend Lindsey Graham said, I'm definitely not going to pretend. And Mitch said, yeah, this is a partisan process. I'm going to be partisan. I'm going to work in lockstep with the president. There will be no daylight between what he wants and what we want. If you heard a judge say that, if you heard a juror say that, they would be disqualified from that trial. 
Now, the House and the Senate should be held to somewhat different standards. It takes a majority vote in the House and doesn't lead to removal. In the Senate, it does lead to removal. It takes two-thirds. In order ever to get two-thirds, you have to not be basing your decision merely on your faction. Otherwise, impeachment isn't a thing. Otherwise, you cannot remove a president unless a political party is has the same strength as a minority political party in Russia or China, which is to say not there at all or there only for show. If factions determine how the Senate process goes, impeachment is no limitation to a president. And if that's the case... And if a president is willing to manipulate an election, it is with risk not having any check to a president's power at all. So we understand what that dynamic is, and it's why so many people are concerned. What might change that dynamic? What might change that dynamic? I want to take a call so we make sure we get through the we're getting lots of calls. and We appreciate those calls. After this break, I'm going to offer what I think might change that dynamic, might make it, you know, not just everything, you know, 48 to 48, an impeachment and removal, and one chamber doing one thing, the other chamber doing the opposite thing. What might change that dynamic? Uh, Mike from Barney Lake, Washington. Go ahead. Hey, Jeff. Let's start with Thankful Thursday. I struggle this morning trying to figure out what to even listen to after last night. I'm so thankful you're on the show today. Oh, thanks, man. Dude, your monologue needs to be a pulpit speech. It needs to be plagiarized and used to no end. I appreciate that. Appreciate okay. that. That's a lot. No, sincerely. I usually sit back, stay quiet, listen, absorb. That first caller this morning led me to wanting to call in, and it led me to the whole McConnell situation. McCarthy announced that he's not re- running for re-election. We saw this in 2017 with a lot of congressmen. Yeah. Just want your thoughts. I know we can say it's compromise. Conspiracy theorists could say in the Times. But how it's being spent is, you know, the opportunity to work for uh, this current administration in the next uh, four years. Yeah. That, it sounds so weak to me. I just, out there, you seem informative enough. Why do we see the mass exodus of our congressman? And he's only been in there for, you know, two terms. Yeah, no, it's, I, I, I'll offer I'll offer my thoughts. My um, so the when I don't have all the facts, I try not to offer conclusions or even necessarily predictions. What I try to think about are hypotheses and scenarios. And here are my and then I can maybe rank them about which I think are more likely. But what are the my hypotheses and scenarios? Uh, one is yeah the the risk of compromise. How do you get out of this uh, if you have been approached? And said, listen, uh, the National Enquirer has been holding on to documents. Uh, Maybe a foreign government has been holding on to documents. You got friends who know things. Um, Those things might come out unless you support the president. Uh, Then one way out of that is, okay, well, I'll support the president and then I'll get the heck out of here. That's one hypothesis. That's one scenario. I don't. But I, I think there's another. And they're not mutually exclusive. But there's a, another that I'd, I feel less uh, nervous about putting my faith in. 
Uh, and again, all a, con- all a conspiracy is, is people agreeing in secret to do something bad. Conspiracies happen all the time. Uh, the fact that if you call something a conspiracy theory, all it means is you have, an, you have a, th- a hypothesis supported by some facts that some people have agreed in secret to do something bad. It, is, it doesn't mean you're – if you have a conspiracy theory, those words shouldn't mean that what you say is false. It just means what you say is unproven. Uh, but at the risk of using the parlance to sound like a conspiracy theorist, you don't even have to sound like a conspiracy theorist to say this. Well, imagine two things. Imagine you have linked your identity to the right wing. You've linked your career to the right wing. You have gone to people on the telephone every weekday – for the last blank number of years and asked them for the federal maximum or whatever they could afford. You have stood up at Republican fundraisers and said, hey, we're all in this together, except when we say all of this, we mean mostly Republican white people, and we are, we've got to support Republican principles. And you have defined your young career. Imagine, imagine you were part of the family the, uh, it was a Netflix special talking about the, the house that was spawning uh, staffers in the White House. You, all of your networks of relationships, all your job prospects, all connected. You got two problems. One thing, your principles won't let you stand by this guy anymore. On the other hand, your principles and your career say you can't oppose him. So what do you do when the immovable object meets the irresistible force? Get the heck out of the way. And I think a lot of them are getting the heck out of the way. Maybe also they're worried about losing. We're going straight to calls. Diana, you are on from Bloomfield, Indiana. Speak your piece. Thanks for calling. Hi, thanks. Um, What I wanted to talk about was if this impeachment doesn't happen and Trump no longer has his base to appease, we've seen the record of his past behavior. And once the Republicans have delegitimized this process, what's going to happen if he gets reelected? That's what people need to think about now. What is our country going to look like yep. when the Republicans have said, you can do whatever you want? Yep. That's absolutely right. And, the, and I think that it does. In this next election, there's a lot of attention on the Democratic primary, and there should be. And for those who want a candidate with the politics of a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, the, and that's a really important discussion. I had breakfast with Jeff Merkley a couple weeks, a few weeks back, and his, his focus is maybe not surprisingly on the U.S. Senate. And he makes a persuasive case that I agree with that the U.S. Senate election is every bit as important as the presidential election. The uh, I'll give you it another certainly one. Certainly is this time. Say again. It certainly is this time. Yeah, and Diana, and your point that they're making it obvious. Mitch McConnell is making it obvious just how important it is. And all of a sudden, what if races like Kentucky and South Carolina are in fact in play as they look to be right now? And that doesn't mean that that Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham are going to lose. It does mean they're going to have to put in real money to make sure they win and real energy to make sure they win. Because right now there's polls showing them within five points of losing in South Carolina and Kentucky. If they don't lose, this is not going to be a pretty country after this. And thinking because about Trump basically sees this country as his personal 
pocketbook. Pardon me. And I'll and Diana, I'll give you another one to pay attention to, and and the one that I I sort of flip in the order where I'm trying to get my mind to think about, and that's state legislative races. That now and and good on the Democratic Legislative uh, Campaign Committee for 10xing their expenditures from 10 years ago, and they I think made a significant mistake. The progressive apparatus made a mistake in not investing significantly in legislative races. That now state legislative races will be the key decider in how districts are drawn after the 2020 census. And so I'd put state legislative races right on a par with the Senate and with the presidency. But I, Diana, I got to say thanks for the call. And we do have Cass Sunstein on and I got to go to him. Okay, thanks. Appreciate you. Professor Cass Sunstein calling from the hallowed halls in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Uh, all thanks to you. So talk to us about what you know about the process now. We just learned that Mitch McConnell said they're not going to debate. He's not willing to negotiate the Senate trial rules. One of the big questions we've got, and uh, your colleague, uh, Lawrence Tribe, my former uh, law professor, uh, made the case in the Washington Post, I'm pretty sure it was. Before him, I saw John Dean making the quick argument, and maybe in more full-throated fashion, a fuller argument, that Nancy Pelosi, the House of Representatives, should hold on to the articles of impeachment until blank. First of all, just clarify, is that allowed? Is there anything that requires Nancy Pelosi to hand them over to Mitch McConnell? Talk to us a little bit about the rules going forward. There's nothing explicit in the Constitution that requires her to do that. We have a bit of a gap in the Constitution that is an unprovided for case. Clearly, what makes her inclined to hold off is a sense that the uh, majority leader doesn't want to take this seriously. And uh, there's an argument, certainly, that she's within her rights in ensuring the House of Representatives impeachment isn't treated as a nullity by the Senate. So uh, I think the best way to understand it is it's not it's not wouldn't be right to say she's violating the Constitution. It would be right to say that she's doing something unusual. Um, but this is a very unusual circumstance where the Senate has Senate leader hasn't given any sense that the constitutional duty on the Senate, which is to have a trial, is one that he's willing to respect. Yeah, the last time this happened, you had a hundred to nothing vote in the Senate about the Senate rules. There was bipartisan agreement about how that should go forward. That doesn't seem to be the case now, or it seems very clear that's not the case now. Uh, what about the next step that John Dean even said, hey, this could be held over. These articles could be held by the House until after the 2020 election. Uh, is there anything, again, in the Constitution or anything in, shall we say, the penumbras that suggest that that overstates the case, that that would be prohibited? It wouldn't be comfortable. I apologize for phrasing it in that way. Uh, <laughs> I've been uncomfortable really, for the whole time. <laughs> well, clearly what the Constitution contemplates is that the House decides whether to impeach, and if the House then impeaches, there's a Senate uh, adjudication. That's what's contemplated. But in a case in which the Senate, let's say, says we're not going to hold a trial or we're not going to hold a real trial, uh, the House has its own prerogatives such that to wait until 
the Senate has agreed to do something that is constitutionally adequate is clarified, and we don't have constitutional adequacy. So I, I should say I've met Senator McConnell, I've worked with him a little bit, and I like him. So I say this with regret, that uh, what he's doing here has a, what he's doing has a constitutionally illicit character that is treating this as, as a, a nothing burger. He can't really do that. It's worse than what he did with Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland, and, and that, that wasn't good. Now, you shouldn't judge a person by an act or two acts, and he has a, many things he's done that are very good, uh, but, but this is troublesome. Professor, you stick with us, because the question I want to ask includes what would be constitutionally adequate versus what do you view as constitutionally inadequate? We're talking to Cass Sunstein, Harvard Law professor, a constitutional expert, and who's written on impeachment on Tom Hartman's show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Question I wanted to ask, you said that right now the Senate has not laid out a process, a trial for the analysis, for the evaluation of the impeachment articles that is constitutionally adequate. What are the elements that are constitutionally inadequate, and what would you view as adequate? What's inadequate is the majority leader saying, I won't do anything that isn't coordinated with White House counsel, and that he and the White House are in lockstep. That's the kind of red, red color warning. Uh, and it's not about the process being specified in those statements. It's a failure to indicate you'll be like what the Constitution requires, which is an independent arbiter. Uh, if what McConnell said, and it was credible, was uh, we're going to call witnesses, uh, we don't know how many, but we're going to have some who know something, that would clearly be adequate if he met uh, Senator Schumer halfway or even a third of the way in Schumer's uh, perfectly reasonable request for witnesses and documents, that, that would be adequate. If he said, look, uh, I'm not prepared now to say we're going to have witnesses, but I will promise you that if there are gaps after the opening presentations, facts, factual gaps for which documents and witnesses would be relevant to fill those gaps, I, I promise you, I commit to you that I will take seriously uh, the interest in filling those gaps. I can't commit to anything particular, but I can commit to an honest process. That would be adequate. So for Clinton, there wasn't a specification of we're going to have witnesses and such. It was just it was clear that the majority thought there was a need for them after the opening statements, and that was constitutionally fine. So I think what's needed is something that suggests this isn't a rigged process. It can be one where people have clear inclinations. That's completely fine. Uh, but for the majority leader to suggest basically it's over before it started, that's constitutionally inadequate. After the jury foreman, after Mitch McConnell himself has made clear that he is not an impartial uh, juror, after uh, Lindsey Graham and others have done likewise, is there anything that can cure that? Well, we the people are in charge of our constitutional order. So if there's sufficient uh, pushback from um, 
you know, enough of a cross-section of the country saying a lot of us like President Trump, a lot of us don't, a lot of us think he should be removed, a lot of us don't. Uh, but we agree that the Constitution is, uh, you know, is, is governing, and you, you can't conduct a process that isn't a process. So that's that's the response. I would hope that Senator McConnell would backtrack, not in the sense that he would say, yes, I want the president to be removed. He can make clear that that's not his inclination, but that now that the thing is getting serious, he's going to do what the Constitution requires. And even if inside his mind he's not thinking, you know, I'm going to be impartial here, if he commits in his role as Senate Majority Leader, he's going to do what the Constitution requires, then we can all take a deep breath. And what do you think, say more again, if you were going to say what the Constitution requires for a decent process, or even for a good process, you already said some number of witnesses being allowed to be called. What's your short list of elements? And I know that may ask you to repeat a couple things. What's your short list, or it could be a longer list, of elements that you would deem sufficient? Well, I think there are two sizes that fit both, I would say. One would be adequate, would be to say, as with Clinton, uh, we're going to have a uh, opening set of presentations, and then we're going to have uh, a decision to be made about whether to have witnesses. I think the Democrats reasonably are suspicious of that because they think the fix is in, meaning they're not going to have witnesses or documents. But if the majority leader says it in a way that is sincere and credible, that we're going to have a good faith inquiry into whether we need them, and I, I commit that to you, then that would be constitutionally adequate. Also constitutionally adequate would be to say we're going to have at least one person Maybe it's John Bolton, who knows something that probably no one else knows or hardly anyone else knows. It may be exculpatory, by the way, of the president. Uh, we're going to have him testify. He's not for the federal, with the federal government anymore. I think that would be, by the way, the, the constitutionally preferred thing to say now we're going to have Bolton testify. And we, we might have others, but at a minimum, we're going to have him because the White House doesn't have the strongest claim for not allowing that testimony. The strongest claim is when there's someone who is actually still working as the president's advisor. Well, Professor Sunstein, I really appreciate your time. And I, and I guess I guess I would just chew on this, that imagine a, a situation, I know it's different, but imagine a situation where the person who was both the judge and the jury foreman said, uh, started out by saying, well, I'm with the defendant. And you can pretend you're not with the defendant, but I, you know, whatever happens, I'm going to be working with the defendant. We're going to make sure the defendant gets off. And then afterwards, they come back and say, oh, but don't worry. We're going to listen to the lawyers and we're going to let them have some witnesses and we're going to get in the courtroom. We're going to have people sit in the jury box. You know, we'll we'll even order lunch. And that's and then after that, we'll vote. You can trust us. Would right. we trust that process? I say we wouldn't. And if we wouldn't, would it be more unusual to have that judge and jury rule on the case, or would it be more unusual to wait until there was the potential for a new judge and jury? I think the analogy is very good. I think you're exactly right. I think the idea of a new judge and jury, that's that's pretty extreme. Uh, and the Senate does have the constitutional prerogative here to conduct. I just the mean trial. the next Senate. I just mean after 2020. Yeah, that would be pretty, it would be pretty extreme to hold off on, um, you know, uh, 
conviction or not yeah. after impeachment. But but what McConnell himself has done is extreme, and one, a wrong doesn't two wrongs don't usually make a right. But it might be that some extreme reaction to uh, what is at the moment constitutionally illicit, as as you described with your analogy, it is. And I say that with you know with respect for the Senate Majority Leader and with regret. I hope he himself regrets some of the statements. Uh, the, the, it would be better if he would say, look, I spoke in this way. Of course, I'm loyal to the president, but I understand I have a constitutionally prescribed role here. and I'm going to take it seriously. That would be better. Professor Sunstein, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All best. Hey guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com, that's blue like the color blue. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach, and since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, just pay five bucks for shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to try it free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring our podcast. go straight to calls. Let's do speed rounds. We can get through all these wonderful people who've been calling and patiently waiting. Will from Broomfield, Colorado. It's your turn. Um, hey, Jeff. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to miss Tom, but I'm glad to hear you because I think you do a great job. Thanks, man. Um, I, I just wanted to clarify something. Article 1, Section 3, Paragraph 6 of the U.S. Constitution says that Senate shall have the sole power to trial impeachments when sitting for that purpose. They shall be on oath or affirmation. I just wanted to put that out there because you'd said earlier that they're not necessarily under oath. Um, but no, they, they, they take an oath. We that. just It doesn't say in the Constitution what that oath's going to be. Uh, well, judging, uh, just going back to what, um, uh, during the Clinton impeachment, do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial and the impeachment of William Jefferson Clinton, President of the United States, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution yeah, that and laws? I'm sorry. Yeah, that that would count. I just I just don't know what the oath is that Mitch McConnell is going to write or what his lawyer is going to uh, write. Well, I'm certain he's not going to follow it anyway. I mean, based yeah. on what he said before. But I also wanted to bring up that uh, kudos to uh, Speaker Pelosi because uh, she's just announced that she's not going to send the articles to the Senate unless she is reasonably certain that uh, that they're going to be impartial. And and I think part of what her grand strategy has been is, you know, the longer this goes, the more, the, the closer to the election, people are going to find their elected representatives 
having to take a stand on this. And, and they're talking about the uh, Republican senators, you know, not saying anything to, to break yeah. from the party. Um, uh, but, you know, they're also talking about a, a, a secret vote. As long as this draws out, the you know, ultimately, they're going to have to take a stand on this. Yeah, I agree, Will. I, wanted, I do want to do speed round. I want to get to a bunch of people who have been patiently waiting. Uh, but, yeah, that's one of the things that could change the dynamic is getting closer to the election. Uh, but then the question is, will there be more information? Will there be some court rulings that require some more information? Is there end up being a little bit of an analogy like the Nixon tapes where it becomes clear and more people become aware of the cover-up that's being uh, engaged in Patrick from West L.A. Go ahead, Patrick. You know, we know that Mitch McChinless um, is, uh, you know, is intent on protecting. Um, hey, not all of us. You know, it, anyway, I don't, we don't have to go after looks, but go ahead, Patrick. I'm sorry. I thought it was funny. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm embarrassed. My own laughing. I shouldn't go after looks. Go ahead, Patrick. <laughs> well, but aren't they, in effect, disqualifying themselves? And I mean, I know it's a stretch. I'm sure it would never happen. But theoretically, could they disqualify themselves? And if so, could the jury pool be shrunk and then essentially the threshold be reduced to achieve conviction? What That's a, my question. What a judge will do is all I mean by law, said uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. The challenge is I don't see any judge doing that. And if the judge of the Senate is Mitch McConnell, I don't see him doing that. And if the majority is a Republican majority, I don't see them doing that. Gary from Vancouver, Washington. Go ahead. Post-1976, the Supreme Court allowed money in politics. Yeah, Buckley versus Vallejo, one of the worst the decisions problem. One of the worst decisions in Supreme Court history. And then they made money speech. Yep. And uh, I saw this on the Rachel Maddow show the other night. It's a little saying. It says, politics don't corrupt people. People corrupt politics. Here we are. And understand that, that this really is what's at stake, Gary, and, uh, and appreciate the call, that here's really where we are. If you're a big picture strategist and you're trying to preserve power for economic oligarchs, you're hired as their lawyer and as their, their political consultant, and they say, okay, how do we get to a place where we can't be regulated? How do we get play back to like the Lochner era when the courts were making sure that there wasn't a Congress or a state legislature or a city council who could make sure there were environmental limitations or labor? limitations or taxation limitations on anything we wanted to do. How do we make sure of that? It only takes a few moves. First move, make corporations people. Second move, make money speech. Third move, expand the definition of speech and what people can do to make sure the corporations can do whatever they want. You do those just few moves, and all of a sudden, if you can get a majority in the Supreme Court, that you can get five votes, and I did call them votes, that all believe that, you can run the table. All right. The, the Kavanaugh was not only about his conduct. Kavanaugh was about trying to make sure that you could, in fact, to quote and cite Nancy McLean, put democracy in chains. That's what's actually been at stake. And that's why people have got to care about the courts and recognize that's the long game. They get more than two year terms. They get more than four year terms. They get more than six year terms. And there's only nine of them. Frank from Renton, Washington. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, Jefferson. I'm a longtime listener, and uh, I just wanted to comment. I'm, I just tuned in, so I'm not sure if you spoke about this before, but I wanted to talk about Mitch McConnell's statement about not being impartial. We definitely talked about it, yep. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say that that is antithetical to the tradition of voir dire in yeah. the U.S. court system. Yes. If he were on any jury pool in any court in the United States, he would be dismissed 
for for cause for stating he could not be objective. Exactly. And, you know, given all of the rhetoric in the House by the Republicans saying, you know, due process and conf- confrontation of witnesses and all that, it's really hypocritical for him to say now, well, I, I'm not going to be impartial. And I realize they're making up the rules as they go along, along but it should be in keeping with the long tradition that we've had in the court system. No, it, and, you it, know, it, there should be some sort of ordeer process in the Senate. And a challenge of ordeer process is the key to ordeer is that which juries you select. The Constitution has selected those jurors, and those jurors are the U.S. senators, not a subset of the U.S. senators. But therefore, it does put a high pension on U.S. senators trying to at least, I don't know, pretend? Or if not pretend, hopefully better than that, trying to be impartial, trying to have it based upon the facts and trying to say, what do we actually think that what, what are the facts regarding Trump's conduct? And do we think they are bad? And do we think they are bad enough to remove a president? And then being on the record about that, and in fact, actually taking witness testimony that is heretofore, that is up to now been blocked. But in the Vordier process, you're right that that would you get two ways to select jurors. One is you got to use one of your uh, no cause removals of a juror. The other is to have your four cause. This you wouldn't even have to use your magic bullets to get rid of one of these. And I don't mean that violently. All you'd have to say is, hey, judge, that person said they're not partial. They wouldn't get to make the decision. What are you thankful for? Share it with us. What do we stand for and how do we define ourselves? While I have the chance, I want to say something about identity. Something about one of the deeper themes that's impacting our politics. Open the show today, and we'll probably close the show today by talking about patriotism. Why I think that connecting ourselves to the best elements of the American story is the best chance to build a progressive majority. Not merely a partisan majority, but a true progressive majority in this country. I also want to say something about identity. That where we define patriotism, or if that is an element of our identity, how else do we define our identity? Identity is powerful. How we define ourselves, I think, ends up having more impact on how we vote than some policy analysis, or even the charisma of a given elected official, or a given requester to become an elected official. We look at India and see what is happening with Modi, and we can either be surprised that the country of Gandhi is departing many, departing from many of Gandhi's principles, or we can say, oh, that a Hindu nationalist is winning in a country that is largely Hindu. Is that that surprising? If their identity is in fact that, well, what do you got that's better? We see the same dynamic playing out in other countries, and how different are we? When the Democratic Party was the racist party, when it was the party with the closest link to the racial identity of majority of voting Americans, the Democratic Party also dominated Congress for decades, swept the South, The Republican Party seized the mantle of identity, started becoming, with Fox News' help, before that with Rush Limbaugh's help, before that with Richard Nixon's help, started becoming, before that with Lyndon Johnson's help in signing the Civil Rights Act, the Republican Party 
became the party with the closest link to the racial identity of a majority of voting Americans and became the party with the closest link to the religious identity of a majority of voting Americans. Didn't mean that they were doing the things that were best for those people. Didn't, do the, didn't mean they were doing the things that were most closely linked to the principles that made that religion sweep many portions of the Western world. But when they connected their party with those pieces of identity, they started winning Congress and started winning the presidency. Not that different from what Modi did and has done in India. To me, the question of the 20th century is what should we allow to be the defining characteristics of our personal and mutual identities? Not just will we have power based on race and power based on religion or power based on the cult that we belong to that has priests on cable news telling us what we are supposed to think and feel even without being frocked as priests. But can we define ourselves in this century? Can we define ourselves? Can we identify as our own identity something that's more closely linked to ideas, to what we believe, to what we love, to what we hope for, to what we share, what makes us similar to one another, not just what makes us different? Can we do that? Because again, if you have to choose between your self-identity and I don't know what some politician says, what are you going to choose? That one can make an argument that identity politics are the politics. But how can we make sure that how we identify ourselves includes our highest values, not only our fears, includes our best notions, not only our desire for power or exclusion? That, to me, is one of the key questions. And I hope that even as attention is focused on the current occupant of the White House, that that will be lessened and not merely focus. That the focus that we place will be for purposes of making us stronger in the future, paying historic tuition so that we have better lessons and learn better lessons of history. Rather than merely give the guy attention, which is, of course, how he's been living his life in order to get Because ultimately, the next election and even this impeachment process is not about that guy. It's about you and it's about us. The next election is going to be how do we define ourselves as a nation? How do we define ourselves as human beings? Do Do we define ourselves primarily by our political party? Do we define ourselves primarily by our racial identity, by our religious identity, by the identity of what? cable news, and even radio shows we listen to or watch? Or do we define ourselves by what we are going to try to bring into the world? By our common commitment, everybody's got a chance. Our common commitment that we're going to make sure the world's a little bit better after we're gone rather than a lot worse. That everybody has a chance to be in the middle class. That we're not going to melt the planet. That it's better for everybody to be engaged in making decisions rather than leaving decisions to just who own the most. That if we can define ourselves by democracy, by the best parts of the American story, then that identity can beat the bad kind. Let's identify ourselves that way. I'm glad to be with you. Let's take your calls. 
D from Seattle. Oh. How you doing, D? Hi. I just, you know, I was watching the Republicans uh, speak all day yesterday, and I kept thinking, so this is what it feels like to be in North Korea. They put uh, man before, democ- before democracy, I'm sorry, before constitution and party before country. And here's a quick joke. How much does a hotel, a Trump hotel cost in Turkey? Curd. Oh, dear. $400, $400 million? $400 billion? Uh, no, Kurds. We betrayed the Kurds. Oh, dear. All right. Well, D, I didn't get the joke right, but I appreciate the call. Okay. Bye-bye. Russ from Portland, Oregon. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Okay, this this just in in the last 20 minutes on my MSN news feed. Turtle, turtle boy... Moscow Mitch McConnell to Nancy Pelosi, you can keep your articles. And I think that is just going to be a great outcome because if those articles, which, by the way, according to Dr. Tribe, Lawrence Tribe, the great constitutional law professor, yeah. there, is, there is no imperative here constitutionally for those articles to move one inch in the direction of the Senate chamber. And if the articles don't go, there's no trial, and the piece of white trash in the White House cannot get up in front of one of his little Nuremberg rallies and say, I've been totally exonerated. I think, and also, also, yeah. our congressman, Earl Blumenauer, was on with Lawrence O'Donnell last night. Yep, saw him. Earl is the one who's been pushing the the meme that, that this article should not go to the Senate, and he is to be congratulated. Yeah, good on Earl. In fact, it's been uh, honored, honored in fact, to have lived in Earl Blumenauer's district for most of my adult life and honored to have been Lawrence Tribe's constitutional law student when I was a law student. The uh, And I think they're both right. And I'm so grateful to you, Russ, for calling of that information. I hadn't yet seen it. And the uh, it's one of the reasons it's fun to do the show, because I learn things every time. The uh, And now there really will be this question. For the callers earlier said, well, maybe you hold on to it until there's a new Senate, until there's new facts. That becomes a possibility. Uh, My wife speculated that uh, Mitch McConnell never wanted this to come over to the Senate in the first place because he doesn't want them to have to vote on it. Let's go to Seth from Free Speech TV. Seth, it is your time from Christiansburg, Virginia. I've got a great idea for eliminating voter suppression. Okay. Um, in Germany, they um, have eliminated the use of credit cards by using um, fingerprint machines. Um, you put your finger in a little machine, and it determines how much you have in your credit card. And you can use the same machine at the point of, uh, at the time at which you vote, to determine whether or not you voted or not, and who you are. Um, rather than using a voter registration card or a driver's license, and, and how would this so, how would this help relieve voter suppression? Well, you don't have to use a voter registration card or a driver's license. It determines who you are by your yeah. fingerprint. I want to think about that and appreciate the call. The uh, you know any kind of bio- biometric. Uh, information that is required for government uh, government function uh, makes me a little nervous maybe that's maybe I'm old-fashioned or narrow-minded to me we can limit uh, voter suppression by making it clear that uh, people voting too many times is not really a problem like it's not like a bunch of fake votes cast 
it's really hard to find a bunch of instances of that and a bunch of instances of that that have impacted an election. Uh, Votes being manipulated, vote counters, uh, the election fraud is a thing from voter fraud. That's a real problem. But I think, too, if what you're trying to do is uh, is boo is eliminate voter suppression, just get rid of voter suppression laws. So start with that and move to same day voter registration, uh, move to include vote by mail that includes a paper record, uh, move to automatic voter registration, uh, get rid, uh, make sure that there aren't uh, racist identified polling places that are closed, racially identified polling places that are closed. Just try to block voter suppression. That's the thing to do. If you're if you're trying to hop on board with the folks who are suppressing votes and saying, well, we, we need ID in order for anybody to vote. Of course, we don't need ID for any number of other things, but we need ID to be able to vote. Let's use a fingerprint instead. Uh, Then, well, I want to think about the fingerprint piece. But I would say there that the penalties that right now, the cost benefit analysis of somebody who's looking at, hey, should I vote if I'm not eligible? Should I cast a fraudulent vote? Uh, The cost benefit is really bad because there are right now really significant penalties for doing that. And there is some chance of getting caught. And the selfish benefit you get from casting a ballot that you're not legally eligible to cast is really, really low. Then I think it's pretty clear why fraudulently cast votes is not a problem of any moment. Uh, so I guess that'd be my response. Lou from Phoenix, go ahead. Hey, you're doing a very nice job, Jefferson. Hey, Lou, I appreciate it. You say it with some surprise in your voice. <laughs> No, I mean it. No, I appreciate it. Go uh, ahead. If, if you're looking for uh, dynamics or uh, criteria sure. to, pre- to predict uh, the results of the election in November, there is a scientific crystal ball that I don't know if you're aware of unless you've heard of Dr. Alan Lichtman, uh, his book called The Keys to the White House. I have not He's read that book. He successfully predicted that Trump would win. Mm-hmm. He also successfully predicted that Trump would be impeached. Huh. And this impeachment is a scandal. It turns the scandal key. So yeah. there are 13 criteria that Dr. Alan Lichtman, spelled L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N, yeah. has used to predict... Uh, I'm looking at the 13 uh, I'm looking at 13 keys now. Party mandate, contest, no serious contest for the incumbent party nomination, incumbency, uh, no significant third party. F- 5 is the short-term economy, 6 the long-term economy, uh, 7 policy change, 8 social unrest, 9 scandal, that's the one you're just talking about. Foreign mm-hmm. or military failures, 10 foreign military success, 11 incumbent charisma, 12 challenger charisma, number 13. Interesting. Right. So uh, after uh, impeachment, I've been involved with numerous arguments from uh, Trumpers who uh, reject polls, who reject numbers, and think that this impeachment will have zero effect. But if you take a look at Dr. Lichtman's system, you'll see that it does turn a key, no, much that's... to the detriment. 
Yeah, Lou, no, it's a really important point. I'm really glad you put this book on our radar screen. And uh, and luckily, the Wikipedia entry has taught me much of it already. And your phone call has taught me a lot of it as well. But the uh, the way that had occurred to me, I remember in the 2000, what, oh, 2000 election when right. Al Gore, who was the Joe Biden to uh, to Bill Clinton, right, was the uh, was the vice president running to with his argument, hey, let's continue some of Clinton's best stuff. Clinton was coming off a strong economy. Uh, and the and I remember that one of the biggest applause lines during the Republican presidential convention nominating George Bush the younger was we need to restore dignity to the White House. And that was a not very veiled code phrase for, right. well, let's stop having sex in the White House and lying about it. And that right. that was that scandal key. That was that scandal button that you're talking about. And now it absolutely will be part of the argument. Hey, whatever, whatever you think, let's have this kind of thing that Trump's doing. Let's have that not be in the White House anymore. And now there is a scarlet letter, not a red badge of courage that is affixed to him for history. And that history includes 2020. I think if everyone checks out uh, Dr. Uh, Lichtman's book, that they'll be that'll give a little more ammunition, a little more insight into the big picture of what will happen. Also, another key, as I recall, is because um, I'm looking at the keys right now, yep. is uh, the midterms, the the 2018 midterms did see a remarkable increase in uh, a number of Democratic uh, representatives and senators. Yeah, this is is number one key. After the midterm elections, the incumbent party holds more seats in the U.S. House of Representatives than after the previous midterm elections. So the book, again, is The Keys to the White House by Alan J. Lichtman, offering those 13 keys. Uh, I've started checking it out. I'm sure other people will as well. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Robin on Free Speech TV from Kingston, Washington. You're in speed round. Hey, Jefferson, here's a quick one for you. I think there's a golden lining in this impeachment delay, and that is that we can take everybody that is enthusiastic about our democracy and turn our energies from impeachment issues to voter turnout. And I'm going to just simply offer this phrase that everybody can steal. Steal this book. Steal this phrase. Drain Trump's swamp. 2020. Over the last years, we have been spending too much energy with this impeachment thing, and really we have to keep our eyes on the prize. Drain Trump's swamp 2020. Thank you very much, Robin. Bob from Lansing, Michigan. We just heard Robin saying, drain Trump's swamp. What do you want to say? Well, my opinion is I think she should leave this uh, impeachment process open until after June when the Supreme Court is supposed to rule on uh, the appeals from the White House. I believe the actual answer to getting Trump out is the release of his financial records and getting five or six witnesses, including Trump himself, to be on the witness stand. Yep. And if we keep it open until the next election after the next election, when the Senate returns to the Democrats, I think uh, Trump, rather than actually being kicked out of the White House or out of the presidency, would give it up and retire like Nixon did. Yeah, Bob, and I really appreciate the call. And it is, like, think about the articles that did move forward on. After 
What some people read in Robert Mueller's report was, in fact, a letter to the doctor saying, uh, this is this is you guys. Y'all got to start an impeachment process. If you read the uh, as, as Tom has been reading on the air, it spent a bunch of time reading it on the air. The uh, Mueller report can be read as itself the precursor to articles of impeachment. It did not lead to uh, impeachment articles. The call with Ukraine, the whistleblower and the partial transcript did. Now, how come? I think the biggest reason is not severity of the crime. I think you could make an argument which is more severe, but is the clarity of the evidence, the understandability by various folks that what. And so the swing district Democrats, the Democrats in particular, those or including those who won in Trump controlled districts, whereas before looked like, well, they won't support impeachment. So let's not embarrass ourselves by by, you know, getting 190 votes for uh, for impeachment and losing. Uh, that they were willing to go with it because this shit was about national security and the evidence was clear. I think the thing that could change the dynamic could be if there is more clear evidence, uh, evidence that is uh, released by the Trump administration, probably because they were forced by a court. I don't know if he'd even do it if a court forced him to do it. But the other thing that could change the dynamic is if he were forced to and didn't do what Nixon did and said, said, no, I don't care what the courts say. I'm not doing it. And then maybe the dynamic changes because of the more clear awareness of the cover-up. But I like your June timeline. Appreciate that reminder. We're in speed round. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Show. It's almost time for the big, big finish. Ben from Hood River, Oregon, a beautiful, beautiful place. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. My question, and I'll try to be uh, succinct here. Uh, well, first of all, I'm super proud that the House voted to impeach. It's a moral victory. But what is the point of impeachment if there's no mechanism for censorship or curtailing Trump's ability to continue doing what he's doing? And if the bar for impeachment and conviction and removal is so high that somebody as obviously criminal as Trump can't be removed, does that need to be changed? Should the bar be lowered? Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'll answer both. I heard two questions. I'll try to answer both of them. The first one is, uh, what impact does it have on a president? What check is it on a presidential power if there is no punishment, if the president isn't removed? And I'll go back to a previous caller who cited a book and said, well, just the Scott, my word is scarlet letter, but just the scarlet letter, I of impeachment uh, does impact the historical record and probably impacts a person's ability to get reelected. Uh, it did impact, in my judgment, Al Gore's ability to get elected after and, and all he was able to do is win the popular vote and have the Supreme Court pick him anyhow or pick George W. Bush anyhow. But I do think it impacted uh, Al Gore's ability to win uh, after Bill Clinton was impeached. So I think there is some I don't think it's worthless. I don't think it's worthless, but it is hobbled if factions decide impeachment trials rather than facts deciding impeachment trials. I agree with Cass Sunstein and Larry Tribe and any other darn person who gives a darn about the Constitution. The 
so what could be changed? I actually think it would be interesting. I like juries. I like sortition. I'm liking sortition for more stuff. I think more questions should be resolved by juries of our peers who are given time to use their sober second sense and who are able to make decisions based on facts rather than based on a power analysis or what the next job is going to be or if they're going to get reelected. I think we should be looking at more of that. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be opposed to that investigation for even removal of a president, particularly if this, particularly if this is a tit and the tat is, okay, anytime there's a Democratic president and a Republican House of Representatives, that Democratic president is going to have some Benghazi trumped up and that person is going to get impeached. Uh, I, I think that's what they were, tr- they were wanting to do with, uh, with Hillary Clinton, want to get ready for that. If she were elected president, that they were going to uh, impeach her, I'm pretty confident. It might be that we have to look at a new process. I promised speed round, and I just violated my own, uh, my own hope. Uh, Bob from Kenosha, go ahead. Yeah, I was just wondering, seeing that the uh, impeachment passed the House, um, should Donald Trump still be able to have his little re-election rallies and have that money put into his coffers? Um, nothing in the Constitution. Yeah, nothing Nothing in the Constitution to get against it. The Constitution didn't really contemplate billion-dollar campaigns. They didn't talk a lot about fundraising in the Constitution. If the Constitution happened again, probably have to think more about uh, fundraising. By the way, AOC tweeted something that relatively parrots something I started saying uh, last year. I'm not giving myself credit. I'm just saying I agree with her. The uh, Here's her tweet. He can say he can go. He can be impeached or voted out in 2020. But here's the thing. But removing Trump will not remove the infrastructure of an entire party that embraced him, the dark money that funded him, the online radicalization that drummed his army, nor the racism he amplified and reanimated. Kathy from Free Speech TV, we're in speed round. Hi. Um, I... um I'm from Michigan, and I'm north of Battle Creek, and I believe of all the places in the world that he could have chosen to be, he was in Michigan during his impeachment. And I want people to understand how saturated Michigan is with Russian propaganda. But you asked a question earlier, and you said, um, you know, what is it with the Republicans? Why are they, uh, you know, circling the wagon so tightly, and I think they have all accepted petrodollars from Russia or Saudi Arabia, and um, so they don't want to be exposed, so that's why they're circling so tightly. And Appreciate one more thing it. is... No, um, no, we got, we got to do one per because we're in speed round, but thank you so much, okay. Kathy, and Michigan, and got to give a shout out to Debbie Dingle. I really appreciated her response to, uh, to Donald Trump's uh, disgusting attack on her, and she did a smart thing in my mind by not attacking back, but instead just naming the conduct and how it impacted her, meaning it was harder for him to then whack her back. What he did was disgusting. What she did demonstrated class, and I know she's about to go through her holidays without, uh, without her husband and love to her and love to her family. Uh, Chaz from Lakewood, Washington, you might close speed round with something funny to say. Well, uh, I don't know how funny it is. Naza drove you, Jefferson. You're named after my idol. I do want to say, though, we should have suspected something was going to be wrong because Donald J. Trump thinks that the J in his name stands for genius. <laughs> okay. I knew that was now, the joke. I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much. Now, what I want to say is thank you. The uh, having a chance to be with you. I mean, I needed a place to, I needed a place to talk. I needed a place to listen. I needed uh, to be with a community that was trying to wrestle with this stuff and grapple with it. And the chance to do that with you uh, is a real privilege. Tom will be back. 
I again want to lift our minds, lift our eyes to some of the deeper themes, not just have the current occupant of the White House take all of our attention, but yes, to be thinking about democracy, yes, to be thinking about patriotism, that the story of the Democratic Party is a story of trying to get better in a nation trying to get better advocating for working farmers during an agrarian age, moving into the machine age, working to overcome control by corrupt political machines, and in the past 60 years, working to overcome its own entrenched racism, becoming a party that is advocating for equality and opportunity for everybody, a party as imperfect as our country trying to get better. What I want to say is as a movement, whatever political party you're part of, is a movement, let's try to get better. Let's try to make our factual analysis not only about tribe, Let's make sure that we are also bending the arc of history towards justice, that we here stand for democracy. And you, you are the good people doing good things for no good reason. You are the benevolently irrational and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. And with you, we got a chance. Democracy has got a chance. And it was marvelous to be able to have a chance to be with you today. I hope you have a marvelous Christmas. I hope you have a marvelous holiday season. Have a marvelous new year. I may be with you again in the new year. Be with you. And thank you, democracy. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Harman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.